Yo, my name is Rowdy, Rowdy Piper. I am the biggest of the big. And you know what I do when I come to Canada? I seek out the dog's breakfast, baby. Jesse Moss, Lee Steele, you can't steal nothing from him. They too smart. They know over everything. So, baby, if you're in Canada, the first thing you do, see if Rowdy Piper's there. Make sure you're safe. Second thing you do, listen to the dog's breakfast. Maybe you'll learn something. Hello, big dog. Uh, yeah, my name is Roddy Piper. Uh, I'm calling in uh, 9.30. Hey, R- Roddy, it's Jesse speaking from Big Dog. How are you doing, Jesse? Ah, not bad. How about you? Good. Yeah, I'm on this side of the grass. That's a good thing. <laughs> so, I'm here for you when you need me. Awesome, Roddy. So, you know, you're, you're no stranger to sketch comedy. You've been on Saturday Night Live and, and Mad TV. What can we expect to see from you on the Royal Canadian Air Force's New Year's special? <laughs> um, good Lord. Uh, I did the 12 Days of Christmas which just made Sports Illustrated, why, I have no idea. Um, I did my New Year's resolutions, which might be different than everybody else's. Um, I, uh, I worked with, uh, I did a lot of improv with Rob Lindsay, who's one of the writers there. Uh, great guy, I like to drive him crazy, because I improv a lot, mostly because I have no memory. <laughs> um, so, uh, you know, it's that, those type of, I did also the uh, Craig uh, Laws and, uh, he did the skit 12, 12 days with me. But Andy, the guy that drives the car and does all the uh, observations, um, I did one with him, too. Uh, they just let me improv, you know, uh, which is best. Uh, try to keep it contemporary. They, uh, it's, a, it's kind of a legend, I guess, in Canada, Air Force. Yeah. Uh, I didn't know that the show had ran on radio. Did you know that? I actually did not know that, no. No, nah, and so it came from radio to television, and I think it was like maybe 18 years it was on the, on the air. Um, so it's it's quite it's actually it's actually an honor to uh, to be on the show, and you know like that's a that's a hell of a track record in, in, on any show. So uh, <laughs> you know there's a few left turns for you there, and and uh, when you see it, uh, the thing uh, this year is the show is airing on New Year's Day at 8 o'clock. It used to air New Year's Eve. And it got bumped because of hockey, I heard. Yeah, yeah, which, uh, I don't know, just half of them are hockey fans. <laughs> they're pretty <laughs> angry. Uh, but uh, So they're going to air New Year's, uh, New Year's Day at 8, 8 o'clock and then re-air it, I think, at 11. But uh, 8 o'clock is the time to take a peek at it. It's a lot of fun this year. Was it an emotional taping for some of the crew because of the passing of Roger Abbott? I think so. Um, you know, they uh, get uh, gave the best game face. Um, but, you know, I guess he was kind of a nuts and bolts of it. He, he was just really instrumental. And um, it, it, it cast a shadow. But they're pros, you know. They rose up. And you see this stuff. It's, it's pretty funny. Uh, and um, they were all very kind to me. They kind of rose for the moment. I'd come in, and I did it all in, um, oh, I think a day, and maybe a day and a little bit. Uh, uh, I can't remember. Uh, and they were great to me. They were just, just wondering. Uh, they, they didn't um, dwell on his passing. They, uh, I think they may do a tribute on the show to him, though. Yeah, I'm sure they will. You know, yeah, yeah. Um, good guy. Yeah, and Roddy, you, you know, you've always managed to act, whether it be TV, movies, sketch comedy. How closely does your passion for acting fall behind wrestling? Oh, my goodness. Um, passion. There's an interesting word. Uh, 
know, the reason I started acting, the very first film I did was with Henry Winkler. And um, the reason I started acting was it was the only place that a fighter could get health insurance for his, for his family um, through SAG. And uh, then I discovered I liked it. Um, and it wasn't until after one and only, it was not, not until 80, 88, I think, something like that, I did They Live. And, um, and then I appreciated the art of it. And uh, I got, you know, I'm not sure I'm a wrestler as opposed to an artist, not to be too uh, foo-foo about it. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I also uh, went to the comedy store at Sunset Boulevard and I'm in, in their Hall of Fame. Uh, for stand-up comedy, I did that for about a year and a half. Um, so there's a passion there. So if you're like what you're asking me, it's a little more complicated. I take from the comedy store stand-up comedy. I take from the the film, the passion I have for making films. The wrestling is a unique uh, product to itself, but they're all different arts. I'm also a musician, so I take from that art. And then when I do a sketch uh, or I do a dramatic piece. I have tons of places to draw from, you know, and I had a childhood with Satan, so <laughs> <laughs> it's easy to find those those low points. So, so you've got the wrestling, you know, the, the acting, and all, we all know that you play the bagpipes. Do you play any other musical instruments? Yeah, I play the piano, the guitar, the harmonica, the accordion, a little bit of violin. I don't know if you'd say I play the violin. I know a little bit about it. Yeah, I can <laughs> play, I'm, you know what, I'm one of them guys that, I can catch on very quick to music. I don't know why. And uh, and, and Roddy, uh, today we we announced that you were coming on the show, and we got a whole ton of phone calls. Uh, wait, people wait. wanting to ask you questions, and and one I, of the, I own money. <laughs> <laughs> well, one of one of the main things they said was is that they they don't watch wrestling anymore, but they used to. Do yeah. you know why do you think that is? Boy, I hear that a lot. Um, I think uh, this is the reason. Uh, the in. Oh, First WrestleMania, I think, was at 85 or 6, one or two. And it was a bunch of guys that had made it on their own in a whole lot of different geographical locations around the world that came together to take over the world, so to speak, to wrestle against any promoter. There's not too many guys that would do that. That was a, a real blacklist thing to do. And... So when you have Morocco, Orton, Schultz, uh, Hogan was a uh, kind of a little bit of powder puff. He was an office boy. Um, oh, Fuji, you know, Tony Allen. So there's a long list of them, as, as you'll remember when you see the card. Um, so when all those guys got together, there's no friendship between those guys in the locker room at that time. I mean, of course, I, how are you? I, how are you? But they're all feeding their families. It's not a big... Uh, it's not a big party, and oh, I missed you, I missed you. We're all going out there at that time to make our money as much as we can and take it home to our families. And I'm going to outperform everybody else as they are me. And that chemistry in itself eluded because when you get in the ring, you're, you're outperforming everybody. And it, it, it raised the bar on, on exactly what was going on in there. And then the suits kind of take a look at it and uh, wanted to put it on the public on the public market and now it's just milk toast nobody's allowed to say what they mean 
necessarily are. They're not. They don't have that privilege. And uh, what that's done is kind of flatline it. Um, I love every one of those wrestlers there. They're fantastic. I'm not, you know, I'm not knocking anybody. I'm just in answer to your question. Is it's a public company now, and uh, so the company itself shut down the voice of the wrestler, uh, so that it could now carry the um, carry the message that was wanted that week on uh, any particular television. You know. Yeah. Uh, so you let you let out. Uh, Rick Flair said, "If Billy the Kid lived, his name would have been Roddy Piper." <laughs> and uh, that, you know, that's kind of, I don't know what that really means, but it kind of sums up uh, somewhat of the truth. Uh, they everybody was really they were really tough. They weren't afraid of anything, and they would go get it on a second. Well, I'll tell you a quick story. I'm uh, they just I'm walking down the hall someplace, and the uh, matchmaker yells, "Hey, will you fight Mr. T?" I said, "Yeah." I just kept going. Never gave it another thought. Um, a guy named Dave Schultz, who slapped Stossel, I was about 10 feet away from him, pow, pow, for being a wise guy. Um, he figured that he should be the one wrestling key. So we're in Los Angeles, uh, I think it's the sports arena. And, you know, we have, we have police now. We didn't used to, but we have policemen now, city policemen. And there's, they're kind of guys that are, uh, you know, well into their career, and they're very quiet. They don't say much, and... So all of a sudden, I came back from the ring, uh, and I had done something with T, and Schultz, just, he's a big boy, just hit the ring, was just going to beat the dog out of T, and these old policemen got some kind of high sign. Whoa. They had him down, cuffed, hog-tied, and, and just carrying him back to the thing like he was going to be dinner for the one-body group. <laughs> <laughs> oh, but, like, Schultz was going to sneak in there, and get try to take that fight away from me, uh, just on his own. It would, those kind of things. I'll give you another one. The honky talk man. Pooh. Sorry, did I spit? Um, <laughs> he at one time bought the name Roddy Piper. <laughs> now I don't know why. What, what do you mean he bought it? Well, you know, at one time there was the name uh, Roddy Roddy Piper. I never trademarked it uh, in the early days. Because, you know, uh, there was no sense into it. Nobody else was going to call themselves Roddy Piper, and then the real Roddy Piper doesn't show up. But and then as things got big and it became a billion-dollar industry, you had to get everything trademarked and et cetera. Well, Roddy Piper, this is, again, early 80s. Uh, Roddy Piper had just been laying around. and You know, I, I created the name, so I just went with it. Um, for some reason, Honky Tonk Man, some, I think it was in the 90s, it, it somehow got in there and bought the name. Uh, I don't know why. And then he didn't do anything with it. Um, those are kind of some of the things that you never hear. Uh, it's a vicious business. So I had to take care of that piece of business. Well, in your era of wrestlers, it seems like there's so much bad blood between everyone. Yeah. I was talking to him uh, on an interview kind of like this. Uh, I, you know, I know them all, and I understand. But I, I think this this might be the easiest way. So I don't waste your time. You know, I hear uh, Ultimate Warrior on Hogan and Hogan and Hart and Flair, and uh, I love them all. I love them all. 
But here's my point with instead of just going into a whole thing for you, here's the bottom line. That's how much each wrestler individually took it to heart back in those days that they still, whether right or wrong, I'm I'm not commenting on that, they still carry 20 years later, 25 years later, that grudge and that seeming dislike. Uh, you know, I don't think Joe, Joe Frazier and Muhammad Ali still dislike each other that much. Um, I, I know they're not great friends, but I don't think that they dislike each other like that. That vehement. And so at the time, the amount of, of you that you put into getting into that ring, right from when you got out of bed, in the gym, whatever it is you had to do to yourself, I mean, everybody took it to heart. They meant it. And now we see later... Um, it was such a it was it was a great time. It was a wild west time, but in retrospect, it was a tough time. We lost so many guys uh, because it was about as real as you get. And those those people that you're talking about, uh, they still hold that grudge because that's that's how much of them they put in to what they did for a living, and it was for the fan. Um, that's you know it was all too. Uh, to uh, entice the fans to come. And the only way you can do that is through what you do yourself. So I'm, I'm sorry there's all that bad blood. I, I spoke up and said, you know, we should all try to get over it because there's nothing we can do about it. Um, and I just did again. Uh, I, I'm sorry they feel that way. I, I'm not mad at anybody. Myself, sometimes. Well, Roddy, watching you wrestle for for your career, you could tell you put your whole heart into everything that you did. Did your feuds ever get personal with other wrestlers? Oh yeah, a lot of them. Uh, One time, I painted myself half black. That's stupid. And wrestled this guy in the Sky Dome, and um, he he swore to to his dying breath that I was a racist. Had nothing to do with nothing to do with race. Um, and you know, like by the time I got in there, it got real frisky. Uh, many times just getting in the ring and, you know, town J or someplace in UK, I'm making it up. Uh, you know, it'd be somebody to have a bad night or they'd be off or whatever. And we'd get into it right from the very beginning. The good thing about that is it usually made for a short match, but, uh, then you had to watch the guy. For the rest of your career, because you didn't know when there was going to come behind. I'll give you I'll give you a story real quick. Um, there was a guy named I'm not going to tell you two names, but I'll tell you the story. Okay. Uh, just out of respect, you know, one one of them's passed away, so I, I don't want to do that. But I'll tell you the story. Who it happened to? It happened to uh, Ernie Ernie Ladd, the cat. You ever heard of Ernie Ladd? No. I, I, oh I, I, my lad. <laughs> Ernie Ladd was one of the most feared NFL football players. Period. Uh, huge boy, huge, <laughs> huge, huge, and just Ernie the Cat Lad, anytime you want to look him up. And um, so he was in, at that time, the territory was uh, Florida, and he was going on television. Uh, it was just studio wrestling, meaning 40, 50 people in, in a studio, and uh, he said to the two fellows that were running it, no. I'm not going to go on there and because uh, they had a new young guy coming up and they wanted that new young guy just to flip him around. He says, "No, I'm not doing it. This is on television. Everybody's got their, you know, everybody's got their morals or 
are their their proper line to draw. And so uh, Ernie's out in the ring and he's and he's wrestling and he's taking care of this kid pretty good. And he looks over and all of a sudden the red light of the camera's on, which means they're recording it. Uh, ooh. Uh, so Ernie just walked out of the ring. And, uh, you know, what are you doing? What are you doing? Ernie, I'm talking about a big boy now, okay? 6'8", uh, guessing, um, 340 in shape. Uh, and so he went to the, his car, and these two fellows came out with him to the car. And Ernie uh, opened his trunk to put his bag in, and these two guys were going to take him out. And Ernie, <laughs> Ernie in the back uh, of his car, in the trunk, was a tire iron. So beep, beep, <laughs> one hit here, one hit here. He put them in his car, drove to the hospital, took them, threw them on the steps, and away he went to the next town. That kind of stuff has happened all the time. Wow. Uh, it was much. Well, I've been stabbed three times. I don't know if this is the Christmas version you wanted. Excuse me. I mean, I'll cheer it up here. I'll talk about the worst and, you know, add midgets. No, I enjoy this. <laughs> but, you know, th- these are things that this generation doesn't know. Um, do you know I know how they take care of thieves? How? <laughs> um, I will. I just want well, just just a little bit of respect here. So I just won't mention one name of this. Uh, so, um the thief is dead. We don't tolerate thieves. You see, we don't have nobody that, that back in the day, especially that that um, uh, policed us. We were all, you know, whatever. More trouble I got into, the more they liked it because it made the papers and more people came. So they actually encouraged me. Um, this one time, uh, guys were, you know, you'd put your poke away, your your poke your money and stuff, uh, and. They're coming back from the ring, and like a guy would go, I could have sworn I had $100, and there would be $80 there. Uh-uh, I'm making numbers up. Mm-hmm. And another guy, you know, and it, it was happening for three, five weeks. You know, I could have sworn, and, and it kind of got around the dressing room. Well, the policeman of the organization at that time in that territory was one man named Gorilla Monsoon. Oh, wow. <laughs> and the other guy's name was Arnie Skolan. Arnie Skolan was not a man to be messed with. Uh, he was a World War II hero. Uh, he, I really got along great with all the old timers. He told me some stuff that he had to go through. I mean, so you know, straight guys. Man. So this one wrestler that was suspected. Um, now we, the rest of us, I'm just a little kid at this time. You know, I'm maybe 17, 15, 16, 17, something like that. And uh, there was money laying. I came into the dressing room, and there's like a wallet and money laying out, just a little peeking out of the wallet on just on a bench. I don't pay no attention to it. I get my boots on, you know. I know I'm going to be on the first match. I know I'm going to get the dog kicked out of me, <laughs> whether I want to or not. Just another day in paradise. <laughs> and uh, then this other guy, he goes on the third match. And he wrestles and uh, comes back and takes his clothes off. Uh, but the money's gone. And now, I don't know the money's gone because the wallet's been taken and picked up. So this is all hindsight, okay? So the guy comes in after his match, and nobody says a word. And he takes off his, you know, strips down, time for a shower, goes to take a shower. And when he gets in the shower, his hands turn bright, bright red. Well, there's some kind of solution you can buy that you squirt it on the money, and if somebody touches the money, when they touch water, their hands turn red. And there's 
uh, Gorilla Monsoon and Arnie Scrollin standing at the door. They come behind, boom, and elbow them and knock them out, put the hot water on them, strict hot water. Wow. They come out of the shower. They hear a groan and a guy getting out, boom, down again, boom, down for a half hour. And we've never seen him again. So He was fired? Fired? <laughs> he almost died. Wow. <laughs> no, we don't fire. We just kill. <laughs> you know, uh, he didn't, excuse me, you know, for the record here. Uh, he just never, are you kidding? <laughs> he never came back to pro wrestling, period. Yeah. He had a rep as a thief, and I don't know what damage was done, uh, but heavy damage. Um, was in the hospital for a long time for burns and whatever else. Okay, so let me bring this around Christmassy. Okay, hey, pal, <laughs> you got you're good. You got me right in there. Um, I love I love all the professional wrestlers in the world. I'm the last of the Mohicans. I'm the last one that came from where Arnie Scolan and Gorilla Monsoon came from. I'm the last of the Gorgeous George. I was just so little. I was 15. And they made me do some terrible things. And Christmas for me, I would get an empty 7-Up bottle and I'd put a pussy willow in it. Because I always wrestled Christmas Day. Christmas and Thanksgiving are huge days. And I, I never had a Christmas tree. That was my Christmas. And uh, that was for years, man. And then because, um, just because I, I, uh, God shone on me and I was fortunate, I, I got my own family. And... Uh, so when I went up to Air Force, uh, when I, and where I go any place now, I got four of the most beautiful children in the world. And uh, my son is an MMA fighter, undefeated as an amateur, uh, five and old, and he's turning pro. I need a doctor, a lawyer, not another damn fighter. Anyway, <laughs> <laughs> so when I go up now and I did the 12 days of Christmas, I don't mind making fun of myself or anything because... It's really been a difficult, difficult road. I, I've been stabbed three times, gone down in an airplane, been electrocuted, uh, had cancer, um, all these things. And uh, you're not allowed to take any time off. Cancer, they did all the radiation and all the uh, yucky treatments. And five days later, I was doing an MTV show called Sweet 16. Uh, I got stabbed in Raleigh, North Carolina, an inch from the heart. Next day, I was in the ring. Here, here's, the, here's the summary of it is... For me to be able to speak to you now and have just done this 12 days of Christmas in an original way, Rob Lindsay of Air Forest, one of the great writers there, uh, and Wayne, uh, the great guys, is just blows me away because I'd be dead for sure if it wasn't for this dysfunctional family I was just telling you about. Uh, it, it, it was un incredibly difficult. They, they hated everybody. Uh, when I started, because it was the last of the gorgeous storage era, and those there was a bunch of men between oh, 43 and 55 that had missed their big chance in their main event. And here comes this skinny little kid, 15 years old, with a kilt and bagpipes. You know, my nuts hadn't even dropped yet. My voice is still up in the sky. And they hated me, and they beat me up for four years, every night, every night. And I would have left. I didn't have a place to go. And finally, uh, I was asked to come to Madison Square Garden. I'm talking too much now. Oh, no, 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 you're not. <laughs> I, I, I'm just trying to get to the Christmas Eve part, man. 
<laughs> okay, the Pussy Willow's in the bottle, the Seven Up bottle. Okay, there's the Christmassy part. <laughs> the dwarves, uh, you know, I guess they were the midgets that we uh, were playing with last night, and we've all got a hangover. We must have been midget tossing. This is the Christmassy part. <laughs> uh, when I was like 19 years old, 20 years old, um, I was, you know, again, it's just God taking care of me, but uh, I, I was selling out the Olympic Auditorium, which is. Uh, the Madison Square Gardens of the West, especially way back in those days, and all the way up to the sky, uh, Cow Palace, Roy Shires, and Vince McMahon Sr. Uh, called the promoter and said, I want to see this kid. They called me Boy Wonder. It's just a stupid name, you know. And so, holy cow, I'm going to New York. I'm about 180 pounds, you know. And uh, there's every, there's a young guy named Andre the Giant starting. There's... There's a guy in his prime called Bruno Sammartino, Tony uh, Tony Atlas, you know, Mr. Mayor, oh, Lord. And so I get to Madison Square Garden. I got my bagpipes. I pull my bagpipes out. I get them ready. I get down. I'm doing push-ups, trying to look like 181 pounds. <laughs> I'm on third. There was promoters came from Japan, Germany, U.K. to see this boy wonder. They were going to book him all over the world. I get in the ring. I was on the third match. And I used to do this. I used to say, would everybody be, everybody be quiet? I'm going to play the Scottish National Anthem on my bagpipes. Well, Madison Square Garden is just 24,000 Puerto Ricans with knives. You know, like, <laughs> quiet. Hey, amigo. Whatever, you know. So it took about three, four minutes to get them quiet. But I came fifth in the world playing the bagpipes. I, was, I knew what I was going to do. But the promoters are getting a little angry. Like, hey, you want to get on with it? Finally, the microphone came down. I put, put the bagpipes out by blue. <laughs> Nothing came out. Nothing. Now, when I came to Madison Square Garden that night, Captain Lou Albino, do you remember him as a manager? Oh, yeah, oh, yeah. Uh, okay, so he comes and he squeezes my cheek and he says, Hey, Paisano, because I was on a national Spanish station at that time. They could see me in New York. And he squeezed my cheek and hugged me. Ah, and I'm a nice guy. They're all my, you know, all my surrogate fathers. And he says, We don't want you here. You're too good. And kind of slaps me in the back of the head. That's rest of love. Remember Classy Freddie Blassie? Yes, I do, actually. <laughs> yeah, yeah, pencil neck geek, and he had the cane, right? Oh, yeah. And he'd, and he'd hit me right in the, right on the bone in the shin, you know. Ah, boom. Get out of here, you punk kid. We don't want you here. You're too good, you know. Yeah. Just wrestler love. Isn't that sweet? Back in the ring, okay? Bagpipes come up. <laughs> nothing comes out. I'm checking the, <laughs> checking the spark plugs, checking the oil, you know. Does the distributor work? And I can't figure it out. I came fifth in the world when I was... But when I went out, when I was uh, 14, I came fifth in the world. I won 1920 now, and I can't make him work in Madison Square Garden. I dropped the bagpipes because I'm not getting nowhere. And I go after my opponent, and I go back to the dressing room. I came in a limousine. I go back to the dressing room. They come back. They say, don't call us. We'll call you. And they sent me back to the airport in a cab. Uh-oh. Oh, and I fell. And because... Because they didn't like me much around the wrestling world because I was so young, uh, everybody had a really good laugh on it right around the world. And then I went, wait a second. I'm driving back now to, I think it was JFK in a cab, those doggone bagpipes. And I grabbed the bagpipes. When they said they didn't want me, they meant it. And Freddie Blassie, the, where your fingering goes on the bagpipes is called the chanter, stuck six feet of toilet paper up my chanter while Captain Lou was hugging me and squeezing me so they wouldn't work. because And they told me to my face, you're too good, we don't want you here. 
It took me ten, uh, no, no, ten, eight, eight years to get back to Madison Square Garden. Um, and I got really, it did a couple things to me. One, I got unbelievably mean at that time of my career. And I was being trained by, at that time, the toughest man in the world. Not according to him, either. Look him up. His name's Judo Jean LaBelle. Uh, LaBelle, capital L, little E, capital B, E L L. Jean with a G. Um, I guess there's no other way to spell Jean. <laughs> That's a wrestler. Okay, I'll finish this damn story up. Uh, and uh, he trained Bruce Lee, Chuck Norris. He's only given away 23 black belts. And uh, he's about 79 now. I talk to him all the time. He's my daddy. I've, read, uh, I've written books with him on. He's a jiu-jitsu guy. Uh, so after that happened to me in the garden, and I came back, the only guy that would have anything to do with me was the toughest man in the world who started training me. And I had a real mean streak in me. It wasn't until I had my first child that I could appreciate Christmas. Um, because I, honest, uh, you could, I had it many times. I've been stabbed three times. I didn't care. You could point a gun at me. i just laugh at you and say, shoot me. Um, that was a mindset. Uh, it's a long answer. But that was the mindset of the people back when I started. Um, today, they have catering. They have, mas- I'm not kidding you, masseuse. They have an x-ray machine. They, you know, it's like tape, trainer, uh, whatever you need. They have it. Uh, I was one of the greatest tape thieves in the world. Can I borrow that tape? <laughs> you never see me again every night. Um, so that's uh, a long answer I tried to make short, is the difference between the, I don't want to say the real guys, but, you know, the guys that, had, the guys that started the, the uh, going through the Donner Pass compared to guys that now are coming in, um, you know, waxing, <laughs> waxing, suntanning, and weightlifting, and say, gee, can I be a wrestler? Did, did you ever confront uh, Freddie Blassie? You know something? That's, you're good. Good questions, man. Uh, usually I don't get somebody as smart as you. <laughs> no offense to the others. <laughs> <laughs> um, i tell you what. In my business back then, um, telling on someone or stooging on someone was looked at in a bad way. I never said a word to anybody. Never. But what, where I started my learning curve, really, is, I don't maybe, like, I'm back in L.A., three, four months, everybody's had a great laugh, and they kind of forgot about it. But then the question arose, is, didn't can't that kid play those bagpipes? You know? And, well, what happened? And then all of a sudden, to, like, Arnie Skolan, Gorilla Monsoon, to the, the higher echelon, what? Blassie did what? And when I came around next time, not, not, the, not the time that you're talking about, the WWF, but I would see these guys all the time, they started taking me under their wing because they had beat me up enough. And then all of a sudden I had a shot, and it was such a dirty, foul thing to do. They started teaching me psychology. And every little bit about the... ABCs of professional wrestling. And they hammered me and hammered me for hours. I would drive with them, and it'd be six hours there, six hours back. It would drive me crazy. 
but I got an education from them that nobody to the, nobody now alive has, and uh, and they, it endeared them to me. I guess you know you get beat up and you just you never see a guy get beat up, beat up, and he's not doing very well, but he just won't quit. You, you got to say, geez, uh, guys got game, you know, and. Then they taught me things that uh, they only teach certain people, and they groomed me to be the Roddy Piper that you would have seen on the first Piper's Pit, because I used to just take those guys on. That was all ad lib. There was nothing. <laughs> Nobody wanted to come on Piper's Pit. Uh, you know, uh, do you know how Piper? How long an interview do you want, champ? Hey, I'm going to go as long as you're willing to go. I was just going to ask you that. Okay. Well, um, I love you so much for doing this. <laughs> what we're doing is we're plugging Air Force. And then I'll finish it up with a couple with a story, if you don't mind. Yeah, for sure. Or any questions you got. Um, I love these guys in Air Force. I mean, I love them. I want to do my own variety show in Canada. I was born in Saskatoon. So well, we're, just, we're talking about... Uh, January 1st at 8 p.m., uh, I'm going to have uh, three skits, one that's just making Sports Illustrated right now, uh, 12 Days of Christmas. And it's, I made it for so mom and dad and the kids and the little baby in the rocking chair can all sit and watch. It's clean, it's PG, and it's fun. So that's why I'm calling uh, because you you were kind enough to uh, you know without you we're nothing if you don't get the word out nobody comes to see us and a lot of pros don't understand that mm-hmm. um, so thank you for that and, and that and that's what I'm about uh, um, and Rob Lindsay who's my main guy in there um, what story was I going to tell you uh, going back to the wrestling part yeah yeah you were talking about Piper's Pit okay do you know how Piper's Pit was made up is that well, I'm familiar with Piper's Pit. I don't know how it started, though. Okay. So, remember I, I told you in the earlier part of this conversation, like, they got all these rebels that they could uh, hang by themselves and brought them all together, right? Mm-hmm. All right. Well, <clears throat> excuse me. If we see each other in a bar or in a restaurant or something, we're, pro- we're all pros. Hey, how you doing? Is that your family? We'd be very polite stuff. But when you put all those rebels in one room uh, to get their job done. Holy cow! There's a lot of there's a lot of sparks fly. Um, so all of a sudden, because we're going worldwide, like Morocco would have uh, on, uh, a between car guy, mid car guy, and he'd be wrestling him on TV, and he'd be throwing him so high, so hard. Here come Orndorff, man of war. <laughs> Orndorff is just. Pure nuts. I love them, but pure nuts. Suplexing. Just listen. We're killing these guys, trying to get over on each other. Does, am I making myself clear? Or I'm using words that aren't. No, 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 that's that's fine. Okay, so I'm looking. You know, I'm doing the same thing. You know, you know, I'm just as black potted as the rest of them. And uh, I'm in a bar in St. Louis, and Vince McMahon Senior hired me. He finally brought me back. And there's Vince McMahon, the one you know, um, in the bar in St. Louis. And I've been thinking and thinking, like, geez, this sucks. What am I going to do? And I, he's there, and I said, Vincent, 
I'll tell you what. You give me five weeks of bow tie and a mic stand, if I don't get the job done, I'm out of here. And I left the bar. And we, TV was done every three weeks. By the time TV came around, I forgot I'd said it. <laughs> but the Piper's Pit set that you know, um, there it was. Now, it's live, live TV, okay? There's no jacking around. And I looked at one. Baby Jesus. And it's all coming back to me now, right? And now, I'm, I'm telling you the story with no frills at all. Yeah. So I see this set about 4 o'clock in the afternoon. We're going on live at 8. So I got, what, four, three, four, five hours there to, to worry. <laughs> I have no idea who my guest is. I never did. They, they changed all the time. So finally, about an hour before, they opened the doors. They came my Piper. This, uh, what is this? What the hell is this? This is Artie Skoll I'm talking, right? <laughs> Go play. Uh, I love them. Uh, never play cards with them. Uh, <laughs> what's the, uh, the shit, the pits? Whatever this thing is, you're up. <laughs> Thanks, Arnold. <laughs> Mr. Scola. Nobody knew what the heck it was. And he says, your guest is uh, Frankie Williams. Well, Frankie Williams um, was a mid-card guy. He, he wouldn't be like, uh, he, he wasn't a main eventer that I would want for a guest to try to kick this thing off. And I was, I don't know if the scared was the word, but um, I didn't have anything to say. <laughs> and now, you know, it's, I've got like two minutes before I'm going to go on. The interview's two minutes and 54 seconds. I get there. I got 30 seconds. I'm going to go on the air. Frankie comes out in front of the, everybody in the arena, sits down, and looks over at me like I know what I'm doing. <laughs> Not a clue. I'm no idea. <laughs> Not a clue, brother. Not a clue now. <laughs> I look at Frankie, and they're counting. You know, they have a special way of counting down. So, like, I got 15 seconds till I'm on the air. And now Frankie Williams is the only Puerto Rican gentleman I know that has freckles. And I'm looking over here, you know, five, four, you know, and you just do the rest in your head. I got a microphone, and I need to say something, Rod. You know, still nothing comes. So I says to Frankie, "So, um, where are you from?" <laughs> and Frankie. <laughs> in the thickest Puerto Rican accent, lies and says, I'm from a Columbus, Ohio. <laughs> We're on, boys. <laughs> oh, yeah, but you're a lousy wrestler. And if you look at the very first one, um, when uh, I did that, I, I, did, I said really mean things to him that normally were taboo to say on television. And I two minutes and 54 seconds, so I'm getting a countdown, and I'm trying to get Frankie out of there, so... I, I can't, you'd have to look at it. I'd need him or hit him alongside the head and pushed him through this blue curtain. And I went to, to go to the camera to finish it off with uh, maybe 15 seconds left. And here he come back like the, like, like the alien on the side of my face. Good Lord, I had to beat the dog out of him, threw him out, turned to the camera and said, every time you think you've got all the answers, I change the questions. Boom. That was the first Piper's Pit. Yeah. And that's nothing. All right. There's no genius in it because I knew nothing. If it wasn't for Frankie Williams, I don't think there'd be a Piper's Pit. That is awesome. Yeah, and we'll just, this is probably a fib, but just for the interview, that will happen Christmas Day. <laughs> Are you cool to keep talking for a bit, Roddy? Listen, you, you're kind enough. I'll give you what you want. <laughs> this is awesome. And, and Roddy, uh, one of the most memorable Piper's Pits that, I, that I've seen was uh, with Jimmy Snuka. 
with the uh, the coconuts, the banana smearing. You want to talk to us about that one a little bit? Sure, sure. Oof. Um, at the time, again, you know, remember when I say a mean streak in me. Uh, let me. Okay, so we're talking about. Uh, I'm trying to give you an example of how fearless uh, and stupid I was. Uh, okay, I'm in Mexico City, and, um, you know, pretty big city. <laughs> a lot of people don't speak English. And I was on second to last, so um, I wanted to beat the people out. So I got my studs on, and I had a Halliburton. Do you know what a Halliburton suitcase is? A gold Halliburton? Uh, I don't know. Okay, it's a, kind of like a, a metal suitcase. It's a very expensive one, and it's, it's a, you can get them in silver, gold. I had a gold one. Uh, so, uh, in other words, you know, it was pleasant to the eye. I get out of uh, Mexico City, excuse me, the arena, and I can't get a cab, I can't get anything, so I just start walking. And I take a left, and there's this long alley. And the alley is maybe six feet wide. Nah, maybe eight feet wide. And I start walking, and at the very end of the alley on the other side are, are three guys. Two guys are leaning back against the wall of the building in the alley, and one guy squatted, uh, leaning against the wall in the squat position. You know, that's, that's just a real typical 101, uh, we're going to roll you. Uh, one guy, you know, two are coming high, one guy's going low. It's real basic. And I've got this really pretty suitcase. Now, I've got about 40 feet till I get to them. I can easily turn around. Nope. I didn't even give it. And by the time I got to them, they saw the eye, and they just got the hell out of the way. Okay? Didn't try to touch me. Nothing. Because um, you could tell. Um, when the pit with snooker come around, it's all in the same era. That I've got the same kind of uh, attitude. I tell you that now because when I'm, telling, when I'm going to tell you the story uh now, my attitude is different than back then, and I'm, I feel bad a little bit for this one. Um, again, Piper's Pit. I think Jimmy was like the third or fourth guy on. I still haven't got it down. I still don't know what I'm doing. Um, and Jimmy's from Fiji. So I'm talking to Arnie Skolan, who's playing cards. Don't play cards with Arnie Skolan. <laughs> and... Uh, uh, it's just, you know, what, what, do I, what, what do you got? You got schnooker. You know, and, jeez, uh, man, and I'm thinking to myself, there was uh, one of the ring boys, and I said, uh, listen, and I, I don't know, gave him a hundred bucks or whatever I gave him, gave him a dime, said, go get me stuff from Fiji, because Jimmy Schnooker, he, he, unbelievably great wrestler, but in the speaking department, he only spoke three words, you know, you know, brother. Hey, Jimmy, how, do you, how you doing? You know, brother. How was the funeral? You know, brother. So, like, I got two minutes and 54 seconds with you know, brother. And um, so this kid comes back, and he comes back with a grocery bag of bananas, pineapples, and coconuts in it. He says, what the hell is this? It doesn't die. I'm in Saskatoon, right? It's stuff from Fiji, you said. Oh, so I'm looking at now. I got about a half hour. I'm looking at this bag of produce I have now, <laughs> wishing I had my money back. <laughs> and 
so I'm trying to make sense of it. And I'm going, well, bananas, what the hell is, well, I guess I could say to them, you know, you're, you look like a monkey, and, you know, they, they scurry trees, and they get the coconuts and chop them open, so, all right, pineapples. What the hell are you going to say about pineapples? All right, so I'm doing this thought process, and before I know it, it's time to go on. Now, I go on with the grocery bag. I didn't even, you know, and people say, like, to me, where did you get that coconut? You know, <laughs> Hank, Safeway, I don't know. I didn't get it from the magic coconut shop, if that's what you're asking me. <laughs> there wasn't one that I knew of anyway. And the interview begins. So here goes the bananas, and I made a, you know, pineapples. What's that got to do with Fiji? You know, you, you fat, fat dog, when you eat all the pig, you need pineapples to dissolve, and ah, that doesn't work. And I went, ah, I like your women. You know, round, round in the middle and furry on top, you know. Yeah, I know it's not that great. Okay, <laughs> but I was on the spot. I got now two minutes left, and I there was six coconuts in there. Now, I took out a coconut, and because uh, you're in Alberta, you, you can probably really understand this. I don't think I'd ever had in Saskatoon a coconut in my hands. I don't ever remember having one. I don't ever remember asking for coconut milk. Nothing. So. I pull out the first one, and there's a table there. And in my mind, I'm going, they, they got away a pound, maybe a pound and a half, and I drop it on the table, and boom, 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 boom. And my mind's going, holy cow, man. Another one? And I, and I'm, but I'm talking all this time. And I'm looking up at Schnooka, and he's just dead staring at me. Well, remember, you know, brother. <laughs> and I'm kind of looking for, Jimmy, you want me to hit you in the head with this? You know, brother. Kind of. <laughs> and I'm getting to the last coconut. And the guy behind the camera is having a panic attack because I'm going overboard, over, over time. All right. And I reared back like Nolan Ryan, man. And I hit him as hard as I could with this coconut. And... Brother, the thing, it just exploded. But when I hit him so hard, he went backwards, and it took this Piper set down, which exposed the fact that they were, we were really in a warehouse, and there was two meat packers and a dolly, one guy pulling on a pell-mell back there, going, what the, what the hell's wrong with a kid with a dress on? You know. <laughs> and now I, I thought I killed Jimmy. Because I looked down, and I don't know if you've seen this, but a guy's eyes roll where you can't see the eye, you can only see the white. Yeah. And that's what his eyes were like. And he wasn't moving. And there was, I'm just talking a brief second, I, I killed this guy. And then, you know, he starts kind of moving, so I didn't kill him. And then he starts really moving, and I took my waist belt off my kilt. And Jimmy's, Jimmy's hurt. And I'm... <laughs> I'm whipping him. And a lot of people think that I was just trying to be this mean bad guy. I was trying to keep him down so he would not kill me. And when you take a look at it, I whipped him. And right behind me, I was trying to get to my dressing room, which was an industrial door. We were literally in a, we used to shoot in a warehouse. And I got behind that door. I got in the door. I left Jimmy. I got in the door. And I, if you could have seen the camera behind the door... I pushed the door shut, and there was a concrete wall behind me. And I had my foot against the wall, 
and I'm pushing on the door as hard as I can because I'm so scared. And Bobomo, the invitation of a Fijian, come on that door. And then they got a hold of Jimmy and got him back to his locker room. And uh, they said, hey, hey, bro, are you okay? And Jimmy, for, they told me for 20, 25 minutes, Jimmy just stared down at the, uh, just sat down and just stared with his head down and stared. And we, we didn't, nobody went to the hospital unless your leg was cut off or something uh, in those days. But here's the thing, is ever since that one day, and Jimmy was one of the hottest things in the world in pro wrestling, um, Jimmy's career declined. Um, it, and it took a little piece out of Jimmy. Um, I'm, I'm kind of sorry I did that one. Uh, you know, not being quite so mean anymore. But anyway, uh, that's how that, that's exactly how that one happened. There was no, there was no great mystery or no great plan because they didn't have those things, such a thing. So I think that that maybe brought up the, uh, the stakes for the people, for the fans watching, you know, uh, how many guys could get hit, hit in the head with a coconut like that? No, nobody that I know of. And if you, the next time you're in a store, pick a coconut up. I'm not kidding you. And just kind of tap yourself on the head with it. It's unbelievable. I don't know how he's, how he's not dead, but I'm glad he's not. <laughs> that's as real as it gets, though, Roddy. Yeah, and that's when, you know, and I wouldn't take a dive for Hogan. I wouldn't take a dive for T. Nobody, I had, you know, I had been groomed um, by the old school. Um, and there's reasons that I wouldn't. They're really legitimate business reasons. It wasn't me being a, a jerk. Uh, and then when I did that to Schnooker, I started getting a reputation of being, I don't know, being a rebel, I guess, or Billy the Kid, whatever. And uh, then every time I did something, you know, the legend just kept growing and growing and growing until I became this, I don't know what I became, actually, but I, I scared a lot of people. But I didn't mean to. I uh, I always thought that I tried to carry myself as a pro. But, um, you know, and then I, you know, when you get stabbed a couple times and they hear that, I went down in an airplane, they hear that. Uh, then all of a sudden, you know, um, you start to live up to your reputation. Now, then you end up painting yourself half black, going against a black dude in the sky dome. And they call you a racist. And I was not, honest to God. Man. You're, in, you're in Canada. You know, yeah. Saskatoon, I, there are no black folk stupid enough to live in 100 below weather with the wind chills. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't, we never had one. If, we had, if there was a black person in Saskatoon, he probably would have been a king. We would have loved him. <laughs> but I needed, with that piece of work there, uh, I'll try to keep it short, 30 seconds. I think it's, oh, geez, some big Hoosier Dome or someplace. I'm just walking down the hall, okay? It's about 3 o'clock, 2 o'clock in the afternoon, and I'm just trying to be by myself. And Pat Patterson, you know, so, hey, Hot Rod, you got a second? Yeah, I walk in the room, and there's Vince McMahon, uh, Pat Patterson, and Bad News Brown. And I could feel the tension in the room. I got uh, will you uh, fight this guy at WrestleMania? And I'm, there's a long pause, and I'm looking at him. And I, I, I don't. I think they think that I'm trying to size him up. He was an Olympic judo champion, mm -hmm. and I'm not. This was going through my head. 
I'm looking at him for about 10 seconds. I'm looking at him, and this was going through my head. I'm probably going to have to do about 60 interviews on this guy. There's nothing jumping out at me. He's just plain Jane. Next thing came out of my mouth, I'm going to paint myself half black. <laughs> I swear to you, and I'll finish with this story, so I won't bother you no more, unless you have a question. Um, Vince McMahon looked at me, and I swear to God, he said, I love you. I swear. Then Vince McMahon went, and the solution that, you, that they put on me, he had it made special so it wouldn't come off when I sweat. All right, now <laughs> I'm in the sky dome. Bad News Brown is not a happy camper. In the interviews, I just, of course, did my face because uh, I had my, you know, my Kilton T-shirt on. But now it's, t- it's time to you know, answer the bell. Now, so I made them make me half coal black all the way, literally, down my body, everything, half black, my little sense of humor. <laughs> now, I come out on a cart that looks like a ring. And it's coming to the, it takes you to the ring, and I got a glove on. And I, I'm doing a motion like you can see me, but like I'm throwing my hand in the air and back to my, like my crotch, back, in the air, back to, and I'm getting about the same reaction. <laughs> you know, I'm doing everything I can to try to make this a spectacle. And people are going, like, what the hell is he doing? I was trying to dance like Michael Jackson, okay? <laughs> so that wasn't working. Anyway, I get in the ring, we have the match. I get to the good part. Um, and it was there, you were asking me a little earlier that that match there uh, got pretty solid <laughs> when I uh, took the kilt and t-shirt off and was completely half black. I mean uh, this, and and I can understand it because uh, I hate racism. I hate it in all its forms. I've been in that situation uh, where not, not liked just because of who I what I what I, what I was. So, match was a tough match. Um, I come back to the dressing room, and there's a lady, because there's clear liquid that, you, that had to be made to take off the special black paint. So she dabs something in, and she starts on my right cheek, and she's rubbing, rubbing, and she's rubbing about three minutes, and my cheek starts bleeding. But the black stuff's not really coming off. And... When I was in the ring, Andre the Giant and uh, back to Arnie Skolan, they, they found out what was going on, and the solution, they dumped it out, and they put water in there. Now, I'm in Toronto, Canada. I live in Portland, Oregon. I'm half black. The match is over. I can't get it off. No way. So I go out, and I tie one on, second to none. I drink my butt off. Somehow I get back in my hotel room in the Sky Dome. When I wake up to catch my plane, the door of my hotel is completely blowed off. And I, I don't know what. And there's a cowboy hat in the middle of my room. I don't know, okay? Don't ask. <laughs> don't tell. I don't know. And I had that Halliburton, okay, because that was the hip thing to do back in those days. And I had a four-foot Mickey Mouse doll. I was bringing back to one of my children, my second oldest daughter. So now, picture it, you know, 235, 240, 6'2". 
I took the cowboy hat, half black, and I put the hat on my head. Because I didn't know if it was a friend of idea. I didn't know. I didn't know nothing. <laughs> and there's my car, and the driver looks at me. I go to the airport. I'm half black. I gotta tell you, when you come in the airport half black, even customs in Chicago, that guy just stamps you. He doesn't ask nothing. <laughs> they when you, I'm going down to Chicago, down the uh, 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 to get to my gate, it's unbelievable. Part like the Nile. Now I get to my uh, to my airplane. I got my four foot Mickey Mouse, and I'm trying to get him in the above. And the stewardess is giving me a hard time. So I buy a first-class ticket for Mickey, and we drink all the way back to Portland, Oregon. took me four weeks to get that crap off me, and I had to go on the sauna and rub and rub, and that's the story of the black. <laughs> <laughs> right. I got, a, I got a couple more questions for you if you're right. okay for it. Go for it. Man. Yeah, I was, I was going to say, you know, all these names you're dropping and the stories you're telling, it's actually unbelievable to me. I've been a wrestling fan forever. What, is it, what does it mean to you to be inducted into the WWE Hall of Fame? Wow. Um, okay, don't, don't, don't allow me to lose respect. Yep. Um, but after what I had gone through, uh, starting at 15, um, it was a very nice compliment, but it's more for you guys than me. Um, it makes for a great television show, uh, before, and it hypes WrestleMania. And I guess it's a nice compliment, but you know, your peers had already given you that compliment because you were still on top after whatever number of years. So it wasn't like, like the matches, some of the matches that I had that broke through, and worked were much more special to me than to have somebody say, hey, Rod, you know, that was never there. Geez, what a, you know, you're in the Hall of Fame now. So I could, I, I want to say, well, thank you very much. That That's really nice. Could, where, where, where is the hall actually located geographically? I'd love to go see, you know, Gorgeous George's role. But oh, we don't have a building. Mm-hmm. We don't have a building. So and I, what I got was a, a wooden plaque. <laughs> I got a wooden plaque, huh? So I'll give a speech. Um, I'm in four halls of fame. I'm also in the World Hall of Fame in Amsterdam. I'm in the Dan Gable Amateur Wrestling Hall of Fame. And I'm in the Canadian Hall of Fame. And, I'm, I mean, they're, they're wonderful. But they're more for you than I think me. Um, I get you here. Yeah. I mean, it's an event. It brings in a crowd. It's lovely. Hey, I'm honored. I'm honored. But, like, let, let a little Roddy come out? Of course I am. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, I mean, I donated my entire life to it. Um, and at that time, I really didn't want it because it would have made you look like, and I believe there was some of this in the, in the philosophy of giving it, like you were done. Well, I went right from the Hall of Fame to Piper's Pit with Steve Austin in the pond in L.A. Uh, the next day. Um, I saw that. So, like, I'm getting in the Hall of Fame, and the next day I'm in the pond in WrestleMania 21. Um, but, hey, 
please. It, it's a wonderful thing. Now, when I got in the, the Hall of Fame in Amsterdam, they gave me a ring. I got a, I got a, a, a plaque, a brown plaque <laughs> from the WWE. That's it, eh? Yeah, but later, all of a sudden, I got sent a ring because the WWE found out that these other Hall of Fames were giving rings, and they just had a, so they made a, a beautiful ring up, and I and I have it. Um, it's very nice. Thank you so much. But um, if you just like give me a really big check so I could take it home to my family, <laughs> that would be really cool. Here, have your ring. Did Did you feel shafted by uh, the WWF and the WWE never winning the world championship? Oh, that's a great question. Um, no, that now that's the Hall of Fame. That's the one ticket that I have that nobody else has is. Um, I, I had opportunities if I wanted to go that way, especially early on. Um, when you become a rebel, it gets a little harder, but here's the thing. Um, the, the old school rules. If you have somebody, you're bringing, you're bringing them in, and you're really going to go with the fella, um, you know, and you're working on them, you know, they, they give you a, a, a strap, a championship belt to help you get over you know, to make you recognize. I don't need no stinking belt. I'm one of the biggest icons ever in the history of my business. I don't need that. Just, uh, I've had belts, 36 of them. They, they're heavy. You carry them around at the airports, you know. Like, ah, what a pain in the neck. But I see, you know, some guys 10 times world champion, 17 times. <laughs> what a farce. <laughs> Come yeah. on. You know, but what you can't say, one thing you cannot say about Roddy Piper is he didn't have any help at all. He did, did it, it on his own. Did it yourself. Yeah, and I even got a, well, this was going to Twitter. You got, I got to give you my Twitter because I'm playing Twitter before I leave. But on Twitter, JR um, at Twitter, this question came up, and they always have me repeat it. When I go to Raw or something, because I think McMahon likes to throw that in, and he thinks it bothers me, and it really doesn't. It's like the nicest compliment ever, and Jay Oz tweeted one time, Piper don't need no stinking bag. <laughs> so, really? Uh, this is the first time I, I've said this. Really? It's the greatest compliment I could possibly get to be where I am and not have anything artificial added to it. That's awesome. Yeah, that's a good one. And, and, and Roddy, one of, one of my last questions here. Life on the road, you know, from your era, we hear a lot about the steroids, the drinking, the alcohol. A two-part question. How, how bad was it, and what do you think of this whole WWE-sponsored rehab program? Um, <clears throat> the, it was back in, back in those days, the... Uh, end of the 60s, uh, well, even even before that, but I, I only pick it up about 69, 70, 71, 73, 5, uh, let me see, oh, even to 83, 85. Um, it was, you know, everybody got to the places where they got by by car, and some of them were like, uh, I'll give you uh, here, Charlotte, North Carolina. Uh, one One Friday, we'd be in Richmond, which is 300 miles. 
Mm-hmm. The next Friday would be Northport, which is 340 miles, one way. We drove. The younger guy sat in the back, uh, cases of beer between them, and the old-timers would sit up front. We better make sure that they got a beer. We'd hit signs and play games, and they would lecture and lecture and lecture and lecture me. Um, it was the way – so how many is 340, 340, uh, 680, 680 miles and wrestle – in one day, get up the next day, and go 200 miles the other way. And this never stopped. Um, the old, old-timers, the street recreational drugs wasn't part of them. Um, steroids wasn't part of them. Alcohol was. That's uh, a lot of guys uh, bit the dust on alcohol. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then... Um, uh, uh, we... we oh, when was this trial? Uh, in in the in the late seventies, early eighties, uh, steroids became pretty popular, um, and everybody that took them kind of paid the price. Not everybody, but most paid the price for it. Um, oh, let's think about that. Uh, we got kids. Uh, I, I think this. You know, I I speak I try to speak the truth, but with responsibility. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> as soon as you put the word "pro" in front of a word, all bets are off. Okay, uh, amateur wrestling Dan Gable. If somebody uses steroids, it's, it's a you know you should just get them out of there forever. No place for any of that. Um, if you want, uh, she's giving me a. You know, the uh, baseball championship universities, rather. Yeah. You know, keep it clean. The Olympics, keep it clean. You put pro in front of it, all bets are off. Um, Because you're doing it for a living. And what you're doing to yourself is your business and only your business, as long as you're not hurting anybody else. Uh, All of a sudden, they're going to take over the world. One time I did 90 fights in 90 days in 90 places around the world. I didn't even know where I was anymore after about actually 60. I had no idea where I was. So um, there were, you know, the things that, that enhanced you to, to bring back money. It, it wasn't to make your body look good. <laughs> no, that's not true. Yes, it did make your body look good. But it wasn't, it wasn't like a bodybuilder kind of thing, an amateur bodybuilder, mm-hmm. where I just want bigger arms, so I'm going to take steroids. It, it was my job not only at that time made them uh, uh, reachable, but I could get my job done because I was being pushed so hard. Those, those were m- most of the reasons for the steroids, recreational drugs, you know, just like today, each person, they, you know, they take their own beat on that one. I, I look back at it, and, and there was one more. The, what was the last question with uh, part two? About what you think of the WWE-sponsored rehab program yeah, they have yeah. now. So um, we watched over a period of about 15, 20 years of this kind of uh, use and abuse. And, oh, my goodness, 40-some guys died under the age of 40. Uh, all my brothers. Terrible. Uh, oh, man. Uh, you know, I won't, 
with that. Just so something's wrong. <laughs> well, geez, they're taking steroids. Yeah, they're fighting 60 times in 60 days, too. Who's doing that? And who's and, and where are they getting, etc.? You know, it's hard to take the wrestler who is in the moment and tired and pushing and has got a family. Uh, there are no contracts now. You don't know how much money you're going to make. You don't know if you're going to be on top of the main event the next day or not. They, kept, they didn't tell you anything. They didn't pay for your gas. They didn't pay for your hotel room. They paid nothing. You had no health insurance. You had nothing. Nothing. And they could fire you on, on, on a peg. And you had nothing, no comeback. Yet these guys would never miss a shot. I was one of them. Uh, it was an honor to it. Um, and you did what you had to do to get there. And also you did what you had to do to make sure you were the main event because they get paid more money. You were the main event the next day and the next day and the next day. It was really serious. It wasn't just a bunch of uh, people running around being silly in my group. Um, uh, I'll tell you, jeez. All right, uh, I'll, t- I'll tell you this, just to show you how screwed up it gets. I guess it's time for people to know. Uh, I won't tell you who, though. Okay. Uh, myself and uh, one, one, two, three, four, five. Uh, myself and about six other guys that were family men, all on top, all, all greatest of the great, with the exception of myself, uh, were there. What we would do, after a while it got so crazy, what we would do is whatever hotel we were in, we would pick somebody sweet, uh, you know, of the six, seven guys, and everything that we ever could want was put in that suite. But, and when we got there, we were fine. We could have anything we wanted. But the door was locked, and if somebody tried to leave, the rest of us would stop them. That was our only way of keeping us alive and keeping the public safe and keeping the holiness of your family. As strange as that sounds, it was from the most purest intentions because it was so crazy that that's the only thing we could come up with. All right, we'll all get one hotel room. Yeah, but there'll be nothing left of the room. Yeah, but we'll be alive, and we won't be in jail, da-da-da-da, and we can have anything we want. Um, people would probably, when they listen to this, probably think that's silly. I, I guess, you know, you'd have to be facing Andre the Giant every night and then talk to me. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, though, the, we kept it pretty under wraps, the younger guys that, were a new generation had a different attitude and they just started doing stuff to rock and roll i don't know how to say that it wasn't part of the job description they there was no sense to it other than to escape their own lives and then they started getting busted and uh all kinds of uh stuff came down okay whether you agree or disagree with that at the time, you know, at war, this is how we kept our family safe and us safe. Um, but the ones that didn't figure that out, which were uh, everybody but the seven, um, when they started dying, you got to you got to look and say, okay, this guy was just a jerk. You know, if he takes drug A, illegal drug A, he deserves it. 
another one died? Well, he's a jerk. You know, if he took illegal drug A, B, and C, he deserves it. Another one died. Well, he deserves another one. Wait a second. Who's pulling the trigger here? I'll leave that question unanswered. Mm-hmm. However, the uh, a wrestling organization decided to put out a free rehab. Now, I don't know what rehab costs, but I bet you it's twenty, thirty thousand dollars. Um, if you go to, I, I don't know, if you go to a real one. Um, so I praise them for putting out a rehab letter uh, and allowing anybody to go to rehab and clean themselves up. Uh, you know, anybody can take a wrong turn and get back on it, get back on their life. Uh, I give them credit for that. The rest of you, I've told you, I've told you how it got there. Roddy, you know what? You've given me more than enough time, and I'll forever, forever remember this moment in my career. The pleasure's mine. Thank Thanks you very for much. Me out too, okay, take care. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye.